Please turn with me in your Bible to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, as we look at our study this evening. If you're new to the scriptures, maybe you're running, wondering where the book of Galatians is, you find the Gospels, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then keep going, and you'll probably hit First and Second Corinthians, and then Galatians is right there. If you get to Philippians or Revelation, you've gone a little bit too far. If the person sitting next to you has found it, you can take their Bible and give them yours. If you have a Bible app, you've, you've cheated and you found it really quickly, right? So believe that God has a special work that he wants to do in our hearts and lives tonight. And as we hear the word, let's prepare our hearts. Let's, let's open up our lives to the Holy Spirit. Ask that God would, would speak to us afresh. Father, we thank you that we're yours. As we, we sing that song, Lord, we're humbled and so thankful that we're your sons, that we're your daughters, that we're loved by you. And tonight we do ask that you would do the work in our hearts that we need. We're all coming from different places. We've all probably had a full day and tired and things in our hearts and our minds. But we're here to meet with you. We're here to draw near to you. We're thankful for your promise that where two or three are gathered, that you're in our midst. That you tell us that your Holy Spirit is our helper to lead us and guide us in truth. So we welcome you here, Holy Spirit. We pray that we would understand afresh the crucified life, the grace that you've given us to walk in. Pray that all would be built up, that all would be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. Today in the news, there was a story, maybe you caught it, of a mom who was dropping off uh, her kids at school in the Chicago area, in a suburb of of Chicago. She had a one-year-old in the back of the car, and she left the one-year-old briefly for just a moment in the back of the car to run the other kids into the elementary school to come out and find that her car had been hijacked, that her car had been stolen with her one-year-old inside of it. And that is not how you want your day to go, right? So she panics, calls the police, and the police, not too long later, found her car parked where it was still running with the one-year-old in the back of the car. And can you imagine the shock for the guy that stole this car? I wanted the car, but not a screaming one-year-old, right? I, did, I didn't intend to, to kidnap anybody today. And so he, he quickly left the car and left the, the one-year-old. And, and she set aside her one-year-old without even intending to, you know, just making that quick, quick moment. I'm just going to run into the school and all of a sudden to find that, that her one-year-old was gone. And I think a lot of times that's the way it is with the grace of God. I don't think there's any of us here that would say, I would set aside the grace of God in my life or in someone else's life, but it's so easy to set aside God's grace. And that's the title of our message tonight, setting aside grace, putting it over to the side and not living inside of God's grace. You may be wondering, well, what is God's grace? I hear this term a lot. I hear this phrase a lot. And it's really God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C. It's an unearned, undeserved, unmerited gift that God gives to us. The church of Galatia, which was a multitude of churches in the region of Asia Minor, Turkey today, was at a very dangerous crossroads of setting aside God's grace. There were Judaizers, those that were committed to the law, saying it's wonderful that you've received Christ as your Savior. It's wonderful that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But you're a Gentile, and if you really want to follow God and really know that you're going to be saved, you have to be circumcised. And I know that you like bacon cheeseburgers, and if you really want to know that you're saved, never have a bacon cheeseburger again, because the law in the Old Testament says that that's not kosher. That's not God's prescribed diet. And so if you want to have salvation, and notice that it was tied to salvation, and really pushing Jews and Gentiles alike to go back underneath the law. And they were struggling with it. So Paul writes this letter to defend the grace of God. And I think our tendency over time as believers, when we first came to know Christ as our Savior, we're extremely touched and moved by the grace of God. But over time, we'll start to set it aside and we'll replace it with legalism. We'll replace it with rules. And they're extra biblical rules. They're not even things that God lays upon us, but they're things that well-intending we lay upon ourselves and then well-attending we lay them upon other believers. 
We don't want them to fall into sin. We don't want them to, to get hurt. We have the best in mind for them, and so we go, well, we've got to put these rules in place. But we all know rules don't work near as well as relationship. When I was in eighth grade, we had the end of the day was a study hall period, and there was two homeroom teachers, and there was Mr. Rail. Now, that was really his name, was Mr. Rail, Teacher Rail, and then there was Mr. Reed. And Mr. Rail, he was all about the rules. And in his class, at the end of the day, it was absolute silence, and you were going to study. That's just the way that it went, whether you liked it or not. But Mr. Reed, he was Mr. Grace. And he put it to you this way. He's like, I could care less if you study or not in here because you're just going to have to go home and do homework. So if you want to waste your time, go ahead and waste your time. And then every single day in his class, he'd say, I know you guys are into basketball, and I'll give you a shot. You take a water piece of paper, and if you can make it in into the, to the trash can, then great. You can shoot all day long. Go for it. Shoot your you know, piece of paper in the trash can. But if you miss, you are going to clean my room. So you're sitting there in study hall going, this is a risk I want to take. I'm bored out of my mind, and I think I'm a pretty good shot. And then inevitably, you end up cleaning his room, right? And Mr. Rail almost drove us to Mr. Reed. That was kind of the way that that worked. Mr. Rail made Mr. Reed attractive, and the law drives us to to Jesus Christ. And and that's what we find in our text, is we're going to see that the law is what really pushes us to understanding and enjoying God's grace. For some tonight, this is going to be a review. And it's easy to hit the snooze button, but I want you to be encouraged is, are you living in the grace of God? And then for others of you, it's going to be brand new, but I hope for all of us, it's transformational. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I also took Titus with me. Paul has given us 17 years of his life. In chapter 1, it says he went out to the Arabian desert for three years, and now he says 14 years later, him and Barnabas go up to Jerusalem. He only spent 15 days of that 17 years in Jerusalem. This would be mind-blowing to many people because the church started where? Jerusalem. Where are the primary leaders at this point? They're in Jerusalem. And Paul's saying, I didn't seek these leaders, I sought Jesus Christ. He's giving his own testimony of God's grace in his life. And then after those 17 years, he goes down to Jerusalem. How did he get linked up with Barnabas? Acts chapter 11 tells us that there was a revival in Antioch. Of the book of Acts, it's one of my favorite works that God did in any of the cities. It was a beautiful work, this Gentile city. It was a team of leaders that God had put together to use inside of the city. And they're realizing, you know, there's a gap in our leadership. We need to bring somebody else on the team. So Barnabas goes and gets Paul. And this is the first time Paul, in an organized way, or in a larger capacity, moves into ministry. Paul wouldn't have been in ministry in the same way if it wasn't for Barnabas. Barnabas, his name literally means son of encouragement. Some of you might be saying, I'm not an apostle Paul, I'm not an out front type of personality, but I'm really good at encouraging people. And in fact, I can see when someone's called and when they're gifted, and I love coming alongside of them and saying, hey, have, have you ever thought about this? We could really use you in this capacity. And that was Barnabas. And they continued to do ministry together for a long time. And it was during this season that they traveled down to meet with the leaders in Jerusalem, and they take Titus with them, this young, young man in the faith, a Gentile in the faith that was serving with them. Verse 2 And I went up by revelation and communication to them that the gospel, which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who have reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So he comes up to meet with these leaders to talk over the gospel that he was sharing with the Gentiles to see if he was running in vain or in the past that he had run in vain. This ministered to me this afternoon is to take the time to allow others to speak in our lives for the possibility of maybe we're running in an empty way. Here we are doing life, we're serving the Lord, we think things are going well, we think they're going in in the right direction, but Paul has the humility to say, I want to meet with the leaders in Jerusalem 
to make sure that I'm on the right track, to make sure that I'm not running in vain or I haven't done, done things wrong in, in the past. It's hard to do, but it's so worthwhile to do that. In verse 3, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. You may want to write down Acts 15, verse 1. It tells us that there were those from Judea, which is southern Israel, who were going around to these Gentile new believers and saying, unless you're circumcised, you won't be saved. If you want to be saved, you have to be circumcised. Now, what they're saying to them and communicating by a circumcision is you have to become Jewish to be saved. In the Old Testament, if someone was non-Jewish and they became part of the nation of Israel, the men had to, to be circumcised. So it was a very clear message that you have to come underneath the law in order to be saved. And Paul says, I cruised down right into the beehive. I had Titus with me and he wasn't compelled to be circumcised. We weren't going to succumb to this pressure to go back underneath the law. In verse four, and this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, that they might bring us into bondage. So, So there was those that were coming in in a very covert, undercover way, spies, to try to find out those who were not living according to the law. Maybe they weren't celebrating the feasts. Maybe they weren't observing the Sabbath in a, in a very strict, traditional type of way. Maybe they weren't circumcised. And so now you've got to go in and find that out and take away their liberty and bring them in to bondage. It's sad to think that there's people out there trying to do that with our liberty that we have in Christ Jesus. Freedom is wonderful. You think about the freedom that we enjoy as a country, it'd be tragic if we lost some of the freedom that we have and the freedom to, to be able to worship. But even more so, what Christ has done for us so that we could have freedom, so that we don't have to be under the law, that we don't have to be under rules and regulations. And to think that some would want to come in and try to take that away from us and steal the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. So you should be aware of that. There will be people in your Christian life that will come alongside of you and and say, what, you have a Sabbath on Monday instead of Saturday? Well, don't you know that the original Sabbath was from sundown Friday to the the sundown on on Saturday? And if you really love and follow God, then that's when you have to have your, your Sabbath day. When the scripture tells us that some esteem every day alike, and there's freedom in Christ to to do that. You know, some may may come along and say, well, when you really get serious about your faith, you're going to eat kosher. And what's always interesting to me about the law is it's impossible to fill the Levitical law perfectly. The sacrificial system is not even in place. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled it upon the cross. It's so detailed None of us could fulfill it, and it's really picking and choosing certain laws that are our pet laws, that are our favorite laws, and start to pick on one another to to bring people under bondage. But it also hit me in reading verse 4, is I don't want to be the kind of person that goes around stealing people's liberty that they have in Christ and putting them under bondage. Hey, you know what? You really shouldn't have long hair. Or, hey, you know, you really shouldn't be playing cards, or... Hey, you know, you, you really need to be listening to, to this kind of music. And well, you need to, and all of a sudden we're putting all of these, these trips and these rules and regulations upon, upon people. I don't want to do that. I want to point people to a relationship with Christ. I want to teach holiness because holiness is tied to a relationship with Christ. But they're not rules. It's out of relationship with him. And out of being in relationship with him, then this is the way that God has, has called us to life. And before long, we may be asking people to do things that God hasn't even placed upon them, and usually that we're not even doing ourselves. That, that, that's the hypocrisy of it all, is a lot of times when I'm putting heavy trips on someone else, if I really am honest with myself, I'm not fulfilling those. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing in Jesus's day. In verse 5, to whom we didn't yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Why do you think Paul didn't put up with this even for an hour? Because it was tied back to salvation. 
They were saying you have to go underneath the law in order to be saved. It's entirely different if someone wants to celebrate the feast from the Old Testament out of appreciation for Christ. And they're not laying that on as a requirement for salvation. Man, praise the Lord. Do it. But if someone's saying, well, well, you have to observe the Sabbath in order to be saved, that's a different deal. We're talking about the gospel. This is a central part of, of salvation. And so Paul says, I'm not going to yield to this. I'm not going to yield to it for, for even just an hour. What if Paul would have given in to this? Imagine what the church would have looked like today for us Gentiles. You know, instead of having baptisms, we would be having circumcisions. You know, that that'd be a tough thing to get guys to sign up for, wouldn't it? I mean, it'd be entirely different. For, for the men's ministry, we were talking about this summer, and we're, we're hoping to have a a big barbecue out in the parking lot on a nice, nice summer evening. There'd be no pork there. You know, that, that'd be no deal. No bueno. Couldn't happen. No go. Right. And the most important thing was what would be lost is the grace of Jesus Christ. The grace of Jesus Christ would be set aside and set apart. And instead of being in relationship with him, we'd be in relationship with rules. Verse six But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Paul was getting pressure from some of the leaders that were really well respected. For Jewish believers, this was much more complicated. They had lived generations underneath the law. So it's very difficult to shed off the law and to not put that upon others. And many people would have come into this type of situation and they would have buckled just because these leaders are so respected. But Paul says, you know, I wasn't that impressed. Why? Because God's not a respecter of persons. And we have a temptation to make too much of some people and too little of other people. Amen? So someone comes with a reputation, they're a good speaker, they write books, they're a charismatic leader. We all probably have a bucket list of a few people that we would really like to have lunch with, you know? And they're leaders, they're leaders inside of the church, and it's easy for us to go beyond where we should and make, make too much of them. And then say someone who's of no reputation, or someone who's, who's homeless, or someone who's hurting, or someone who's, who's suffering. We, we can make way too little of them, and we can over, overlook them. And Paul did his best to treat people equally in Christ, because God doesn't show favoritism, which is really encouraging. God doesn't look at an amazing Christian leader in greater light than you or I, or, or somebody who is in a difficult time. God, God doesn't look that way. He sees us in Christ, and we've heard that, but that's hard to swallow. We go, well, I know Greg Laurie's got to have a special place in God's heart. You know, I know that Chuck Colson, he passed away and is with the Lord now. He must have had a special place in God's heart. God's got to listen to Billy Graham a little more than he listens to me. I mean, here he is, walked with the Lord so long. They say he shared the gospel with more than anybody in, in church history. In all of history, Billy Graham's shared, well, he's got to have a special spot. And God goes, no, every believer has a special spot because they're in Christ. And our access to the Father is in Christ. So that's, that's encouraging. It's something for us to, to think on and dwell, dwell on. And verse 7, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. So Paul's coming and sharing, I've been doing ministry among the Gentiles with the unreached. God has been working. People have been getting saved. Remember that the church was primarily Jewish up until this point. They weren't spreading outside of Jerusalem. There was persecution that happened that that spread them out into the Gentile world. And God used Paul to really take the gospel out beyond, beyond Israel. And he comes back and he's sharing this. And Peter and the other leaders they start to get encouraged and they realize this is the same gospel. This is the same spirit. And we find that it's the same gospel that was committed to Peter. So Peter was focusing on the Jews and Paul was focusing upon the Gentiles, which is the non-Jewish population. In verse eight, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostle to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. Two godly men, 
called in two different directions with the same message, same Savior, and God working effectively in them, God working powerfully in them. So how do you know where you're supposed to go? How do I know where I'm supposed to go? Where is God working in you? What is he giving you a heart for? You know, if you don't have a heart for toddlers, don't sign up for children's ministry. It's going to be a torture to you and a torture to them, right? It's just just not going to last. But if you do have a heart for toddlers, by all means, God is calling you. Go get a volunteer application tonight, right? Where where is God effectively working inside of you? Do do you have a heart for your local nursing home? Then God's moving inside of that. Do do you have a heart for, for widows? Then God's moving inside of that. Do you have a heart for orphans? Do you have a heart for the immigrants that are coming into our country and are dispersed throughout the world? If we listen, God's working somewhere inside of us. I'm more of a behind-the-scenes person. I like to help fix things in the name of Jesus. Man, that's where God's working inside of your heart and your life. You go with the burden that he's giving you. We identify calling with burden. This is something I can't shake. This is something that God has put upon my heart. It's very different. It's, there's a lot of variety inside of it. And we see the difference between Peter and Paul. Aren't you thankful they stuck with their calling? That Paul didn't try to be Peter, that Peter didn't try to be Paul. And because of it, we've got much more effective ministry that's taking place. And when James, Caiaphas, which is another name, or Cephas, excuse me, which is another name for Peter, and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. I'm so glad that the leaders in Jerusalem embraced what God was doing. Even though it was outside of the box, it wasn't unbiblical. It's the same message, the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. But it was with Gentiles where they wouldn't necessarily go and they embraced it. They stopped and they listened and they go, this is the Holy Spirit. This is God doing a work. We're going to encourage Paul. We're going to encourage Barnabas. And that's the place that we want to be. We want to reject heresy, reject false teaching, reject false gospel. But when we hear the gospel and they love Jesus, oh, they're teaching people about Jesus. They're teaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus is the only way to salvation. They're reaching people that I, I would never reach I'm going to embrace them. We're going to be in fellowship together. We're going to pray for one another. We're going to see God do a greater work. Satan loves to divide the body, doesn't he? He he loves to get us to look through skeptical glasses, through that lens of criticism. It would have been very easy for Peter and James, John, to not accept Paul and Barnabas. Verse 10, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which would, which also, the very thing which I also was eager to do. This is interesting on a couple levels because we know from the New Testament the poorest group at this time was actually in Jerusalem, and a lot of these Gentile churches were sending love offerings, financial gifts, back to Jerusalem. So in essence, what Peter and James and John are saying is don't forget the brothers and sisters right back here in Jerusalem. And Paul says, I was eager to do that. And Paul was a real champion of causing the Gentile church to care for the primarily Jewish church. But this also shows us, as we go out and do gospel work, that it does need to be connected to caring for the poor. This would also extend to what Paul's doing in these Gentile regions When we think about how do we reach people, have you ever thought about what's the best way to reach people? I think the Jesus model would always be the best, amen? Seems to make sense to me. And how did Jesus care for people? He met needs and he shared truth. He showed them love by meeting needs and sharing truth. And a lot of times it seems like in outreach, as the church as a whole, we fail in one of two ways. One is we meet a lot of needs, but we never share truth. So, so there's a lot of needs that are being met, but there's, the gospel's never shared. And then other times, the gospel's communicated really well, but there's not a dime spent on meeting any needs. Right? No, we're not going to meet any needs. You know, that, that's just not right. We, we can't meet any needs. And you almost have these groups that are polarized against each other. And we find in Jesus, he met needs and he shared truth. Paul's encouraged, 
Share the truth, share the gospel, and meet needs, care for the poor. One of the overarching messages of God throughout the scripture is his heart for the poor. If you read the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, or you do a search in a concordance, you'll find over and over again that God's talking about the poor. So as we reach out to the least of these, we do it in the name of Jesus while we're declaring truth. In verse 11, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. You don't really expect these kind of relationships between Peter and Paul. We oftentimes look at the early church and we go, oh, those were the, those were the good old days. That's when they really had it together. When we study the New Testament, we find that it was broken, that there was problems. The early church was 1 Corinthians. Remember, we just studied 1 and 2 Corinthians. That church was all messed up, right? It was extremely messed up. And here we find Peter at a place where he needed to be confronted, and Paul is willing to do it. And it says that he withstood his face because he was to be blamed. And so sometimes the Christian life involves conflict. Paul knew that even though it was difficult to have this conversation, that he couldn't let this go because of the damage that it would do inside of the church. And we have to get to that place where we realize, I'm going to risk something to have a tough conversation for the potential for the growth that could, could take place. If you have someone that confronts you, you have a good friend. Proverbs tells us, faithful are the wounds of a friend. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend to speak the truth in love. And we're in that place where we have to confront, we must do it in humility. We must examine ourselves first to see if there's a log in our own eye, to come in a spirit of gentleness. And Paul's gonna do that, and he's gonna do it for Peter. So what was it that Peter was doing wrong in verse 12? For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. So before some come from Jerusalem, Peter was willing to sit down with Gentiles and eat. This seems like a no-brainer for us because we're Gentiles. But for Jews at this time, to eat with someone was a big statement. You were showing unity. You were showing closeness. Remember for Peter to go to Cornelius' house in the book of Acts? It was a big deal. God had to come and speak to him directly in order for him to even step foot in a Gentile's house. And this is after he's saved. This is after he's spent three years with Jesus, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And it was that hard for him to go to Cornelius. So he's taking a huge leap forward. He's sitting down with Gentiles, having some bacon, bacon and eggs. Going, I've just been missing out this whole entire time. It's probably hard for him to choke it down. He may not have even enjoyed it. But then when the group of Jews would come, the Jewish believers would come from Jerusalem, this is what he would do. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So this is how powerful and influential this group of the circumcision was. That you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. You've got to live under the law in, in order to be saved. And Peter genuinely feared them to the point where it altered his behavior and he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles at this point. He wouldn't have, have anything to do with them. And if we're honest with those strong, influential people, they can cause fear in our lives and we don't want to disappoint them. There's this old fable that goes this way. There's an old man and he was walking with his donkey, with a young, young boy. And he happened to be in front of the donkey, and the boy was behind the donkey. And they come into the first village, and he's ridiculed for not riding on the donkey. He's like, you're old, you're having a hard time, why don't you ride upon the donkey? He didn't want to upset these people in the first village, so he gets on the donkey, and they go on to the second village. You know what they told him at the second village? They said, you know what, you're really being unsensitive to this little boy. You know, you should be letting this little boy ride upon the donkey. And he started thinking about that. I don't want to disappoint them. So little boy's now on the donkey, and they're going to, to the, the, third, the third village. Well, the third village goes, this boy's being lazy. He has no respect. He needs to let the old guy walk upon, upon the donkey. 
So they decide that they'll both ride on the donkey together. And they get to the fourth village, and what do they say at the fourth village? It's cruelty to the donkey. It's cruelty to animals. This old man was last seen walking down the road carrying the donkey, right? (laughs) We get all mixed up. We get all confused when we're in this place where we allow the influential to come and get us to do something that we know is against God's word. And sometimes getting away from God's word is much more subtle than we think. It's a religious peer pressure. They're actually asking us to do something that doesn't line up with the word of God. What does this communicate to the Gentile believers? Well, we're really not a part of this. There's a new identity. It's not Jew and Gentile. It's in Christ. There's no Jew, there's no Gentile. But then all of a sudden, Peter, who is one of the most influential leaders, he won't eat with us. Now, if you're wondering if Peter's the Pope, you should re-examine that position. It's very clear, we can say biblically, he's not the Pope. Because the Pope is infallible, and here Peter is making mistakes, isn't he? He's in a place where he needs correction. In verse 13, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with the hypocrisy. Good old Barney, Barnabas. Well, Peter's doing it. I better do it too. I'm not going to eat with, with the Gentiles. This is a lesson on leadership. We're all leaders, every single one of us. And there's people that are, are following us. And if we're going to peer pressure instead of the word of God, we're going to be leading people astray. And Paul sees this, so he speaks up and he addresses it. He wants things to get in the right direction. In verse 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, because this, this is public, it's being seen before everyone. So Paul confronts Peter in front of everybody. Now, now this to me gets a little bit hairy because in man language, it's like it's on if you're not walking in humility. It's a little bit easier to receive correction when someone goes, hey, can I talk to you one-on-one? But it's another thing for, for Paul to bring this up to Peter in front of everyone, but it shows us the humility that Peter has to be able to receive it. We know why Paul's done it, because it's taken place in front of everyone. If you, being a Jew, live in the matter of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? Ouch! Can we all say ouch? (laughs) That's an ouch verse right there. Saying, Peter, you don't even live up to this standard. You're not even living under the law. But now you're trying to compel the Gentiles to to live under the law. And this is the problem with legalism. This is the problem when we're laying burdens on people that are extra biblical, beyond what God's word says. If we're honest, we don't do it ourselves. We don't fulfill it ourselves. And, And so we're laying this burden that we ourselves can't even fulfill. In verse 15, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Now keep that verse in mind because Paul's going to come back and clarify it in just a moment. It it almost makes it sound like that only Gentiles are sinners, but he's going to get back to verse 15. It says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. So the word justification, it means to be declared righteous, declared righteous. It's to have our debt be paid in full. So Paul says we know we're not justified according to the works. It's not according to the law. It's not circumcision. It's not the feasts. It's not religiously fulfilling the Sabbath day. It's not your devotional life. It's not your tithing. There's no works that we can do that would justify us but by faith in Jesus Christ and trusting in his finished work. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, nor by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Why does Paul bring this up at this point? Because he's saying your actions don't line up with the gospel and the way that you treat people. You believe that we're justified apart from the works, but you'll only hang out with people that are doing things according to the works the works of the law. And he's saying that doesn't line up with the gospel. 
if we're declared righteous by faith, then these Gentiles are declared righteous by faith, and you should eat with them no matter if the circumcision show up or not. And that's pretty convicting when we stop and think about it. You know, how deep has the gospel penetrated my heart and my life to my interactions with people? Church, this is a good reminder. Let this sink in. You're not justified by the law. You're not justified by the works, your works. You're not declared righteous based on whether you had a good week or or a bad week. I think most of us tonight, you probably know that, but we we need to be reminded of it, don't we? I did my devotions today, so I'm declared righteous by God. No, you're not. You're not declared righteous based on whether you did your devotional life. I finally made it to a Wednesday night. God, I'm doing good. I must have a little more of your favor tonight. Now you have just as much of God's favor if you don't come to Wednesday night and you stay home and and you kick back. Now is devotions good? Absolutely. Is Wednesday night Bible study good? I hope so. But it's not what justifies us. And that's not what declares us righteous. And before long, we start to enter back into a boss-employee relationship with God. Well, I put in my time. I I, I did my, my hours with you, God, so... Now give me some cookies. Give me, give me my paycheck. God's saying, no, this is a relationship that's founded, that's based on, that continues in the grace of, of God. We're justified apart from our works, apart from the law. We're justified by faith in Christ. Verse 17, but if we, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we are, ourselves are also found sinners. So Paul clarifies and says, it's not just the Gentiles who are sinners, The Jews are sinners as well. And the fact that we're justified by grace is proof that we're sinners. If we need grace, then we're sinners. So we're all found sinners. Is Christ, therefore, a minister of sin? Certainly not. So us being justified by grace, apart from the law, does that mean that God is promoting sin? Absolutely not. And that's the tendency once people start to hear the grace of God being taught, and that's what the resistance to God's grace is. Well, if we teach people that they're saved by faith, then they're just going to continue to live in sin. It's going to create this very sinful atmosphere. I think that's the opposite of grace. When we understand that Christ has paid for our sins, it causes us to want to live in holiness and responding to, to the grace of God. Going back to those two homeroom teachers, you know, Mr. Rail or Mr. Reed? I do a lot more for Mr. Reed than I do for Mr. Rail. Now, remember, I was in eighth grade, right? It was a pretty immature, squirrely kid. But, but grace and, and relationship, it wins your heart in a way that the law never, never could. Now, before we go on to these last few verses, which I believe are very powerful, what would be the Gentiles in our context? Inside of our culture of Rocky Mountain Calvary. Like, what? We have a culture inside of Rocky Mountain Calvary? Absolutely, you know? Well, what is it? You're looking at it, right? Do some worship songs. Somewhere in the service, we have a greeting. Open your Bibles. We study the Bible. Those, those type of things. We, we have a culture here. And there's certain people that wouldn't normally be in our circle And what Paul is saying is he's saying, I went out to that outer part. I went out to to that place and saw God do a great work. And God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In your workplace, there's probably some Gentiles. There's probably some outcasts. You know what I mean by Gentiles? For the Jews, the Gentiles were untouchables. They were not people they wanted to be around. And it's easy to come into the workplace and go, Oh, I don't want to talk to them today. They are a lot of work, you know. I think I'll just turn the other way, right? And God's saying, I want you to have a heart for them. Well, they're just not like me. They're they're different culture, and they make me uncomfortable, and they do weird things, and they eat weird food, and they say weird words, and I, I just don't understand them. God's saying, well, I love them, and I died for them. And so it's important for us to stop and think about who are some people that may be Gentiles in my worldview? How do I treat them? And do I have a heart for them to know Christ as well? We go on into verse 20, verse 18, excuse me. 
For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So Paul had worked hard to destroy this idea that you can be saved through the law. So for him to go back underneath that, oh, it would be, it'd be a tragedy. In verse 18, or verse 19, for I through the law died to the law that I may live to God. This is the purpose of the law, to cause us to die spiritually and to see our need for Christ. If you go back to the Old Testament law, very quickly you go, oh, I need grace. I need Jesus to die upon the cross for my sin. This evening, I need the grace of God. If you have a rules-based relationship with God, eventually, hopefully, it will bring us to a place of realizing I can't keep the rules. Maybe it is, I'm going to be diligent about my Bible study. There will probably be a season where you're not so diligent. And you'll start to realize, I need the grace of God. Maybe you're Blessing inside of your marriage is even based upon your works. Right? We pride ourselves in our marriage where we do, do, do. And we read together, we pray together, we go to church together, we tithe. But somehow, legalism has really snuck in there and it's based on your works. And eventually, you'll start to fall short. Eventually, you'll have a season where you slip a little bit. And all of a sudden, you'll realize, I can't trust in my works. And it's a whole different thing to go before God and say, God, we want to pray together. We want to read your word together. We want to be in church together. But we're asking you to bless our relationship by your grace. Because, God, we're going to be honest. Even after we do everything that we're supposed to do, we're still severely messed up. And we need you to do a sovereign work of your grace inside of our marriage. And you might experience some, some fresh life coming inside of there. We can have a real legalistic perspective of raising kids. God, I do, do, do. I do this, 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 and I'm expecting now this outcome in the life of my kids. And then at some point, that's going to cause death if that's what we're relying upon because we're going to realize I didn't do all the doo-doo I was supposed to do. (laughs) And I'm in trouble. Now again, I'm not saying it's not wrong to take those steps as a parent. We absolutely should, but we need to be relying upon the grace of God and saying, Lord, I know at the end of the day, after I've done all that I can do, there's sure a lot more things that I've done wrong than I've done right, and would you please work in the lives of my kids by your grace? As a church family, we don't want to approach the Lord and go, you know, is God, is Rocky Mountain Calvary, we're a bunch of a doers, and we've done our part, and God, we look at us, we're, we're a faithful church, So now would you bless this church by our faithfulness? Like to say that out loud almost sounds like blasphemy, doesn't it? We say, Lord, we love you. We're trying to serve you, but we know we mess things up a whole lot more than help you out. And would you bless this church by your grace? And would you allow us to have a testimony in this community that's a supernatural work of God that even goes beyond this community, but would you do it by your grace? Eventually, the law will bring death in us and hopefully cause us to rely upon the grace of God. And Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. This is a life verse for me, and I don't say that flippantly. This is a Bible verse for me, a a verse I've memorized that God has allowed me to go back to, and it's a good reminder for me I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. What this communicates to me is my life is is over. And I need to be reminded of that daily. That my sinful flesh, my sinful desires, past tense, they have been crucified with Christ. My life is done. Jesus put it this way, that whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for Christ's sake, we'll find it. And when I'm struggling with sin and being tempted with sin, in those moments that I cry out to Christ and remember this verse, I don't always do, it brings back that, that reminder, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I, I who live. And it's important to live that crucified life, to remember that the power of sin is broken. We have to remind our sinful flesh that our life is over. Because our sinful flesh, until we go home to be with the Lord, it's going to wake up every morning and say, Eric, you're in charge. Eric, do what you want. Get, give in to sin. Oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. You know, 
Nope, you're crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. I'm surrendering over to Christ, but Christ lives in me. Pause on that for just a second. Christ lives in you. The creator of the universe, the creator of the galaxies. We're starting to learn more about the galaxies. The Milky Way is not the only one. And he spoke it all into existence. He designed the the human cell. We look at the magnitude of the galaxies, but also the intense design of one human cell, the foundation of life. Jesus created that. And we think of the power of Christ, but then we think of the approachability of Christ, that he became human flesh. So God in human flesh, he understands our humanity. As he lives inside of us, not only is he all-powerful, but he's all compassionate. He's all understanding. He knows what it is to have a bad week. He knows what it is to struggle and be tempted, and he lives inside of us. Creator, incarnate, Savior, died on the cross and and rose again, the Alpha, the Omega, Emmanuel, God with us. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in you. So instead of rules, instead of legalism, it's pointed to Christ. And guess how close he is? He's in the heart. Now that is incredibly close. If you're married, your spouse isn't even living in your heart. And they're probably like, praise praise the Lord. I don't even want to know what's going on in there, right? Sitting next to you is close enough, right? Christ is in, in the heart. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And then... The life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. So I'm approaching God based on his character and his promises instead of upon my own works. Faith in who you are. God, I pray that you'd use my life for your glory, not by my works, but based on your character of who you are. Lord, I'm receiving your love, not based upon who I am, but because you promise it in your word. And and Paul's saying, this is the way I live now. I'm not living by works. Do you think that was a hard transition for Paul? He grew up under the law. He grew up as a a Jew. Everything was oriented that way. And to shift outside of that and to be able to live in the grace of God through faith. Then this is key right here. Who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm living in the love of God. I'm living in the fact that he loved me and he gave himself for me for me. We sang tonight, I am yours. The Christian life is found in identifying in the love of God. John, the disciple, he got it. When he wrote the gospel of John, he never referred to his own name. He always said, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I know I'm loved by God. And that hit home in his heart. And words can't do that. Preaching can't do that. Worship songs can't do that. But the Holy Spirit can the Holy Spirit reminding us, touching our hearts, touching our lives, reminding us with a sunset, with a sunrise, reminding us when we hug our children, when we sit down, when we eat a good meal, when we take communion, the Holy Spirit saying, you're my son, you're my daughter, and I'm living in that love. I'm identified in that love, completely different than rules and regulations. I believe it will result and much greater walk with the Lord, much greater holiness that comes from a relationship with him. And then let's focus on this last verse. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. The old King James, which has the these and the thous, says I don't frustrate the grace of God. I don't set aside the grace of God. You've got a really close friend, a family member, and they're struggling to pay their bills. They can't pay their rent. They can't pay their mortgage. You know, you go to them and you say, you know, let me help you out this month. I don't want your house to go to foreclosure. I don't want you to lose your rental home. God's blessed us. Please just let me, let me help you out this month. And they say, you know, I'm going to pay my own bills. I can't accept it it's too hard for me to receive. And they lose their house. It goes to foreclosure. They lose their rental home. Wouldn't that be frustrating? Yeah, I want to give grace here. I mean, maybe it's not earned. Maybe it's not deserved. You don't ask them to pay it back. 
Maybe they made poor decisions to even get into that place, but you love them. They're your family. They're your friend. And you're like, I'm going to extend some grace here. I'm going to just, let me, let me, let me cover this. Let me, let me pay for this. And so many times people miss salvation because it's through grace, isn't it? They go to God, well, I'll pay my own way. I'll pay my own bills. I'll make things right. And God's saying it doesn't work that way. The only way that you can be saved is through grace. But then here's this church that had received the gospel and they're tempted to set aside the grace of God and start to trust in their own works again. And we go, how could they? You know, how would they? they? That's impossible. Why would they ever do that? But I bet there's a big part of us in our own relationship with God where we started to frustrate God's grace. Where God's saying, you know, I want to bless you by my grace. I want to do something that you haven't earned, that you haven't deserved, that is apart from your good ideas and apart from your hard work. And we go, that's un-American, <laughs> you know? The, the American dream is I pull myself up by my bootstraps. I can make, make, my own, make my own way. But eventually, we get to a place, hopefully, usually, where the brokenness is so great where we go, okay, Lord, <laughs> I realize I can't do this apart from your grace. I'm not going to set aside the grace of God. And that's what I hope clicks tonight, that we come to the Lord, even as believers, and say, Lord, I don't want to set aside your grace. I don't want to frustrate your grace. Teach me to not live in rules and regulations, but to live in your love, to receive your grace. And the last thing that we read, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So if I could save myself through the works of the law, then Jesus wouldn't have to die. So church, let's stand and let's celebrate that grace tonight. Come meet with the Lord at the communion table and enjoy his grace. Father, I know in my life it's so hard to, to live in grace. I always want to slip back to a works-based mentality. Lord, we realize our own sin, our own fallenness, and we want to receive your grace afresh. Forgive us for trying to earn or deserve things from you. We want to live in relationship, live in your love, live in your acceptance. Holy Spirit, would you help this truth to set into our hearts and our lives. Would you bless this time in communion? In Jesus' name, amen.